0: Thank you so much, Mr. Freeze, for joining us on the Quantum Leap podcast today. I'm very excited to talk to you. You have been a writer in television magazines. You have a book. I'm most excited to talk to you about different shows from my childhood and teenage years that I really love and uh, you've been involved with. Mainly, I want to talk to you about the Christmas episode of Quantum Leap that we uh, love to talk about every year. It's called The Little Miracle. Could you tell me how you got involved with Quantum Leap?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely happy to do that. Uh, First, please call me Sandy. Oh, thank you. Uh, Sure. And second, uh, thank you for having me as a guest. I'm a big fan of your podcast. You do a great job. So now, after the compliments are done, (laughs) here we go to the question. Uh, I had always, always loved Quantum Leap as a show, you know, as a viewer, uh, before I uh, did the A Little Miracle episode. You know, the the writing was just so brilliant and sophisticated. The acting was brilliant and sophisticated. Every element of a show that you need to work well worked beautifully on that show. Nothing was off. Uh, And I said to my agent, get me on this show. I don't care what you have to do. I want to write for this show. This is maybe one of the best written TV shows in the history of TV, best produced, best acted, most sophisticated And I just pushed my agent to get me on the show. Uh, He knew, I believe it was Chris Rupenthal on the show. And uh, he sent Chris a script I did, and Chris liked it. And uh, I got to write for the show. And it was, you know, it's just an amazing thing. It it was both uplifting and wonderful and nerve-wracking at the same time. Uh, And I'll tell you why nerve-wracking. I loved the show so much, Quantum Leap, that before I started doing the outline and the script, I I was so excited and at the same time nervous because I wanted to do a great job that something happened to me that has never happened to me before or since. My hands just got full of nervous rashes Hmm. and I literally had to go to the doctor and I said is this from nervousness and he said oh yeah it probably easily could be that so uh, anyway how did I get started for the for writing for the show I I asked my agent uh, pestered him until he got me to write for
0: it was your first experience with quantum leap uh, writing a little miracle with them
1: Uh, yeah I was writing a little miracle I had to go into a pitch meeting and at the pitch meeting, that that was kind of interesting. But pitch meeting is, we obviously go in and pitch story ideas. And at the pitch meeting was, uh, if my memory's correct, Tommy Thompson was at the meeting, Deborah Pratt was at the meeting, Chris Rupenthal was at the meeting. Uh, I remember Donald Bellasari was not at the meeting, but there were seven people I was pitching to. So the pitch meeting, you go in, you give ideas, that might make episodes work. And I deliver, you know, I, I walked into this room and I vividly remember the room. It was a little on the dark side. And I remember saying to myself, wow, I'm pitching to seven people who are brilliant people and writers. I hope I do a good job. And I knew before the meeting that I really wanted to do a holiday show. The reason for that is they run you know, Christmas shows, usually more often than typical shows. So I wanted to pitch a holiday show. I had known they had not done one. So I thought, okay, that'll be a cool thing to do. So I pitched them a few ideas and lucky enough, the holiday show was the one they went for. And it was pretty fascinating to be in that meeting because your brain has to work hopefully on a level with the other writers and writers slash producers because that's part of what the meeting's about. Part of the meeting is, do they like the idea that you're pitching? The other part of the meeting is, is this somebody we can work with? Is this somebody we want to work with? Is this somebody who's got a talent? Is this somebody who's got a good quantum leap brain? So it's it's an interview as well as a pitch meeting. And uh, luckily, they like me. They like the Christmas idea. And we kicked it around in the meeting and... It's the kind of thing where one person will come up with an idea, another throws in another idea. And it's, TV is a very collaborative kind of a form. You know, It's collaborative in terms of the writing. It's collaborative in terms of, obviously, you have actors giving writers ideas sometimes. Directors throw in ideas. Everybody's throwing in ideas to make the end product great. So it's a very collaborative process. And on Quantum Leap, everybody was phenomenally talented and helpful and nice that it was it was just a great great experience Uh, i'll tell you one other story and and you know this was interesting as well at least to me maybe not to anybody else but they gave me a bunch of scripts of quantum leap to read before i came into the pitch meeting and one of them was a donald belisario written script And I remember reading his script and saying, my gosh, this guy is one of the best writers I've ever read in my life, you know, for anything. His writing had such energy and such style and was so compelling and engaging and entertaining. And you usually don't see that in a TV script. You know, usually a viewer will only hear the dialogue, However, there's a lot of descriptive stuff that's also in a script. You know, Sam does this. uh, The other character walks across and does this, this, and this. Uh, So the viewer doesn't get that. But Mr. Belisario's writing in the script, in the descriptive stuff, obviously in the dialogue, was some of the best writing I had ever seen anywhere. You know, it was up there with maybe the best script writers you can think of, Shane Black, Patty Chayefsky, And the guy is a phenomenal writer.
0: I agree. I I think the writing is what the whole show for most episodes has like a voice where you empathize more with the characters than you would on other TV shows. Like you feel like you're experiencing yourself while you're watching it. And whatever that magic is between the actors and the writing and everybody involved, it just, it worked and when you're talking about the pitch meeting and how collaborative the writing process is for a TV show, is that where you get the um, written by, story idea by, teleplay by? And how does that work?
1: Uh, okay, that's uh, sort of a writer's guild kind of a matrix. Story by means the writer who gets the story by credit comes up with the overall story, the basic story, the beginning, middle, end, the twist. Uh, how the story flows, how the story develops. So that's the basic story. Uh, written by is the dialogue. So the dialogue is could be either one writer or two writers. So, yeah, on this particular episode, the credit was story by Sandy Fries and written by Robert Wolterstorff. Uh, so that's how it worked on that episode. On episodes, for example... The Simpsons, you can have one writer write the beginning draft of the show and then it's read at at what's called a table read and you can have a bunch of other writers throw in a piece of dialogue here, a piece of dialogue there. Uh, So yeah, again, there you go.
0: With uh, you and Robert writing the show, uh, I picture in my mind a smoky room and two guys pacing back and forth with a typewriter. Was it like that or were you sending versions back and forth or how did that work?
1: Well, first of all, I have never smoked. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and I, and I want to make clear: anybody listening to this podcast, please do not smoke. It's bad, it's bad, for, bad you. for you. Yes, agreed. Uh, so, no, there was no smoky room really. Robert Wolterstorff and I met in his office on the, I think it was the Universal lot. Uh, we discussed stuff. We kicked around ideas. I took notes. He took notes. I wrote a draft of the script. I wrote a full draft of the script, you know, start to finish. Uh, I started before the script with an outline, which is, again, the basic story, beat by beat. Then I wrote the script, and again, we had some back and forth and discussion over it. And Then he took the script and made some changes, and that's how it worked.
0: What was your inspiration for uh, doing the uh, Christmas Carol, the Scrooge story in Quantum Leap? When you knew you were doing Scrooge for Quantum Leap, did you just like in your head assign characters who this is going to be, who this is going to be? And does that kind of help like just the writing flow out of you once you have that all in your head?
1: Well, you know, it's it's a very classic story, you know, the, the Scrooge and all that. And I just thought it would be very cool to give it a unique very unusual twist. So that was kind of cool. I also thought, you know, a show that has the heart and the soul of Quantum Leap really needs to do a holiday show. Uh, That seemed to be missing. Another thing I thought was, I work hard on anything I write, so I want this to run as much as possible. And usually the Christmas shows of any series will run every year, whereas the other episodes don't always run every year. They might run, you know, season two and maybe later on in reruns and syndication. But I, I thought a Christmas show would run every year if it went into syndication or even if it was in season X, they'd rerun it just because of the holiday. So it was it was that thought plus doing a spoof on the uh classic Scrooge story and also, the idea of Dean Stockwell doing those uh, characters out of the classic story to me was like, "Oh boy, this is going to be cool." Mm.
0: That's a smart thought of doing the holiday episodes because, like, in syndication, or uh, did you you would get more residuals because it was played more often, right?
1: Well, you want to know something? Yeah, I never said that to you. However, that thought did go through my mind when I came up with the idea, Mm. you know, so it wasn't all me being a noble, wonderful guy. (laughs) It it was also me saying to myself, yeah, I'll get more residuals and residuals for those who may not know means money. So in effect, in addition to trying to be a guy who does a noble story, a heart wrenching story, I was also a writer who wanted to make more money. Mm.
0: Got to pay the bills.
1: Well, you know, hey, I'm going to work just as hard. Might as well make more money off Mm -hmm, of it. mm -hmm. And it it was was a combination of those things. Making the extra residuals was great. Running every holiday was great. Uh, And just the biggest thing was, I remember saying to myself, how in the heck did a, a show with such heart and such emotion as Quantum Leap not do a holiday show?
0: Yeah, well, I pull it out every year around this time, so uh, it's a, probably one of the episodes I watch the most. Um, thank you. Uh, great job uh, in the writing of it. I mean, it, it really is good. It, it's it's right up there with the Tommy Thompson, Deborah Pratt, Donald P. Belisario scripts. It really is.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And and i got to tell you, my favorite part of that episode is the ending. You know, for some reason, the best part of my scripts or my writing – Best parts usually are the ending, and, you know, I just loved the ending. I loved the way it was shot. I loved the way it was acted. As I was writing it, I said, oh, boy, if they do this correctly, this could be a cool ending. You know, I I can't remember the exact dialogue, but it was something like something to the effect of Al saying to Sam, I did not put the star there.
0: That's the thing that gives you that little bit of chills at the end of the story, Did you have that feeling when you thought of that idea? And how how far along into the story idea did you think of that ending?
1: You know, I don't remember when I thought of the ending. However, this might sound unusual. I've had experiences like that Ah. in in my own life where I say to myself, gosh, what was going on there? Was that a miracle? Was that help from the deity? Am I imagining it? And that's the feeling you get at the end of the A Little Miracle episode. Uh, and it's I think it's an important feeling because I think, and this may sound crazy, I think miracles happen. I'll give you one or two examples from my own life where it had the ending of the A Little Miracle story. Was it real? Was it a miracle? There was a time many, many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, maybe more, where I was feeling terrible about something, you know, just really, really down in the dumps, miserable. And I remember thinking, okay, correct deity, that's what I call him, her, correct deity. Okay, correct deity, if you exist, I'd like a sign, please. And please don't give me a sign that could be interpreted one way or the other. Here's the specific sign I would like. We, and I, said, I thought to the deep, you know, me talking to the deity, which is a pretty pompous thing for me to do. But I said, okay, deity, this is exactly what I'd like. I don't want it to be up for interpretation. As soon as I stop thinking, I would like my telephone to ring. As soon as I stop thinking, but wait, then I'll have to talk to somebody and I'm feeling so miserable. I don't want to talk to anybody after the phone rings. So immediately when I stop thinking that, The phone rings, I pick up the phone and it is completely silent. There is no buzz. There is no dial tone. There is no voice. And that to me was a little miracle. And it was what I asked for specifically. And it was beyond what I asked for specifically. You know, I, I didn't want to talk to anybody. So I got complete silence. Not a dial tone, not a voice, just complete silence. And I've never heard that on a phone. And to me, that was a little miracle. And you could say, well, was the star planted there or was it not? Was the phone ringing something from a deity or was it not? You could debate that. My, My belief was and is that that was a little miracle, actually maybe a big miracle.
0: So specific and accurate. Uh, it's, that's it's give me chills listening to it. It's crazy.
1: That's... Well, you know, it, it, was, it, it was so darn amazing to me. Uh, and I deliberately asked for something that could not be subjective or interpreted. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get that feeling at the end of the episode, because I do believe there are miracles. And I also believe that people are not attuned to them or not believing in them as much as they should. Uh, And people might say, hey, you know, Sandy, you're wrong. It's, It's this technical thing or that technical thing. But that's just not how I read it.
0: Well, the whole uh, Quantum Leap show in general, they were very rarely specific about what or who was controlling everything, but there was definitely some intervention from something. So that that really fits in really good with the Quantum Leap overall, I think. Well, let me,
1: let me tell you something else. To me, those are the classiest kinds of stories where the storyteller sets up a situation that is a Rorschach test for the viewer. And the Rorschach test makes the viewer think what is the ending of the story or what is the story about? And it's a catalyst for thought on the part of the viewer. So A Little Miracle was, I think, most importantly, a catalyst for thought on the part of the viewer as to do miracles exist? Do they not exist? Are we alone? Are we not alone? And... I have my answer, but if a million or two million people watch Quantum Leap and use their brains to think about that, then as a writer, I think I'm doing something worthwhile and maybe even noble. People will sometimes change their minds on things, but the whole concept of Quantum Leap is, as you said, it is something that is subjective as to what's going on. You know, who's causing this to happen and is there a deity type entity intervening in this or not? Uh, So that's a catalyst for thought. And I think anytime you could, as a writer, create that kind of a catalyst for thought or a subjective call on the part of the viewer, you're doing something interesting and something useful and something that may help people evolve.
0: Hmm. Mission accomplished with that episode for sure.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh,
0: One of the other things I'm excited to talk to you about is your involvement with Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Borg. Uh, uh, You know how uh, the butterfly effect, uh, little actions here or there, things happen. I wouldn't be doing a Quantum Leap podcast if it wasn't for the computer game Star Trek Borg.
1: Oh, wow. I, I, I was the story editor for that.
0: I walked into a store one day and I saw it on a shelf and I was like, I want that. What is it? A computer game? Okay. So I bought the game and I took it to a computer shop you had to go to back then. And I said, I want a computer that I can play this on. And, and they, yeah. they sold me an IBM Aptiva, and I was able to play it. And from then on, I've been a computer nerd geek.
1: I was a story editor for Star Trek Borg. Uh, and I, you know, it was a while ago, but I remember that game. And those kinds of games have huge scripts because there's so many branches that they can go off on. Uh, So I story edited that. I did a little bit of writing for it, but mostly I edited and rewrote other writers' material. And, you know, the whole Borg thing is an amazing concept because if you look at the situation a certain way, we are now all the Borg, you know, in terms of the Internet, We're all fed the same stuff through the same internet. Uh, We all input media from, you know, Sony, NBC, Comcast, etc. And to a large degree, we are the Borg. You know, we're all hooked up. We're all as one, you know, in terms of the media that we input. And I've traveled to other countries and i you know, I was in Venice, and I saw McDonald's in Venice. I've been to other countries where you see McDonald's. So we've sort of borg the whole world in effect. Am I pushing it for effect a little bit? Maybe, but not that much.
0: Mm. Uh, it's very true. Like uh, nowadays, we don't really worry about learning too much because we know we have instant access to the world's information at at our fingertips.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you something else that I absolutely believe will happen. Elon Musk is part of a company called Neuralink. I believe he's an investor in Neuralink. But what Neuralink is, and let me just explain who Elon Musk is. Almost everybody knows who he is, but he's the founder of PayPal along with his brother. He was one of the founders, if not the founder of uh, Tesla. Uh, I believe SpaceX as well. But anyway, the guy's a very accomplished, very brilliant guy. He's he's part of a company now that is called Neuralink, and it borgs people. Neuralink is a link from your brain to a computer that links your brain directly to a computer. Uh, and that is the borg. Wow. And it's, it's you know, look up Neuralink, N-E-U-R-A-L-I-N-K. Uh, the last time I looked it up about seven, eight months ago – They had uh, openings for people to work there. So if anybody wants to become a Borg creator, if they still have job openings, (laughs) go go to Neuralink, and you too can create Borg. You know, there's nothing different at the core of the idea between Neuralink and uh, what Elon Musk is doing. And you know, Elon Musk is he's a he's an edgy, brilliant, out there guy, and he absolutely believes this will become a mass market thing. And, you know, I've, I've written a bunch of science fiction. I can often predict what will happen in terms of science fiction because to me it's almost a logical extension of what came before. Absolutely, we will become even more and more Borgized as time goes on.
0: I think it's a natural progression.
1: There are people... With brain implants now, and there have been for several years, uh, their connections through either implants or other devices on the head, I've seen video I think it was on 60 minutes of a person who was a paraplegic. However, the person was able to think and just by thinking, move a mouse.: Oh, wow yeah and that you could you could anybody who's listening can find that on the Internet. It may have been 60 minutes, but I remember seeing that a few years ago. so the I'll tell you another story. Listen to this. i I'm a college professor now. I continue to write. Have a wonderful book called "Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You" on Amazon." So I'm plugging that early. I know you're going to mention it later, but us writers plug. <laughs> Secrets your textbook will not tell you on Amazon, one of the best things I've ever written. But anyway, college professor now, I continue to write. I had a student about three years ago who, after class, I don't know how it came up, but he was telling me about something that was going on with him. He was doing an experiment through an MD, group of MDs, where by thinking he had some device on his head, but just by thinking he could control a video game. Wow. And this is about three years ago. So the technology has advanced hugely since then. You know, I teach mass communication and writing and mass communication deals with things like brain implants, internet, you know, Neuralink, all of that stuff. We're, we're headed into some very, very unusual stuff.
0: I, th- I think I'd be all for it if it was non-invasive and upgradable. I wouldn't want to get like an implant in my brain. And then the next year they come out with the new model, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, your your brain will only be able to watch cartoons unless you get <laughs> unless you get the updated model.
0: Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm I'm hoping that uh, I can have a really good uh, retirement when I'm a senior citizen and be in a virtual reality world at my uh, leisure. You know, I know Rod Roddenberry's is working on some uh, with the different companies for some virtual reality stuff. The Borg is, is a really good character, like we're talking about. I love that game. Uh, one of the best things I love about it is you have to lose the game to learn how to win the game.
1: It's a very, you know, I, I worked on that game a long time ago, but the whole concept of the Borg is a fascinating concept. You know, it's, you could look at it as possibly a certain type of government versus a different type of government. You could look at it as a technological world versus a less technological world, but it's a very clever kind of device. The board is a very fascinating concept. I, I've seen other things from Star Trek and other things just happen. On the original Star Trek, uh, there used to be, and this has been written about, so it's not a big deal, on the original Star Trek, the uh, speaking devices, the communication devices were... Flip phones, in effect. And, you know, flip phones at this point are obsolete, you know, the sort of clamshell, but that's what the communicator devices were on the original Star Trek. And uh, another thing from Star Trek, uh, I remember walking through these sets and the computer interface on one of the set walls was supposed to be dark black, And you would either speak to it or you might have touched it. I can't remember. I think it was touching the dark black and the computer would read your finger imprint or whatever. I test drove a Tesla. They have the same kind of uh, deal to control the Tesla. The dashboard of the Tesla is a black screen, no knobs, no nothing, until you turn it on or whatever, and it's just like the interface was on the Star Trek Next Generation Enterprise in some of the hallways. Uh, So the Tesla, you know, the clamshell communicator, uh, I think we're about roughly four or five years away from Neuralink becoming mass market. Uh, A lot of stuff that science fiction predicts
0: actually happens. I think uh, NextGen in particular has been a very big influence on our current like user interfaces for everything. It was just so cool, and I think everybody that's creating things now were in part inspired by that, like in their teen years uh, when they were a kid going, oh, yeah, and, you know, the acutagrams, of course, uh, how all that works is very similar to how all our touchscreen stuff works now. Oh, um, yeah,
1: my, my also Mike Okuda's designs were very... They work really well because the designs look as cool now as they did back then. They're not dated. I can tell you another thing. There was an episode I wrote for Next Generation where the there were three or four candidates for Starfleet Academy. And my idea was to have them play a game that was 3D holographic game to test their reflexes, their knowledge, blah, blah, blah. You know, they told me, the production people told me, hey, Sandy, that, that's going to be too expensive to make it look good. We're going to have to do it on a flat screen. But now you can do a holographic three-dimensional game. I, I've seen holograms that are very, very realistic and, and believable looking.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, coming of age, right?
1: Correct, yeah, coming of age. But Wesley tries to get in Starfleet Academy, and he fails. And the reason he, the reason he failed... One of the reasons he failed was because I uh, was a guest at several Star Trek conventions, you know, as a guest speaker, and fans always used to say, why is Wesley always uh, a genius? Why does he always save the day? Why, he's too, he's too brilliant. Why, why doesn't he ever mess things up? So I thought it would be cool to have him fail getting into Starfleet Academy. Something else a lot of people don't know about Wesley, uh, Gene Roddenberry's middle name was Wesley.
0: So was uh, Wesley kind of like uh, a version of a younger uh, Gene Roddenberry maybe in his mind?
1: Uh, That is a guess on my part. You know, uh, Roddenberry named a character after himself, and the character was a boy genius. (laughs) Now, is there something going on there consciously and or subconsciously? I'm going to guess yes.
0: (laughs) Wesley failed in that episode, but in a great way because he he helped somebody else.
1: Exactly. That was the twist. That was the twist. You know. So it's it's kind of another Rorschach ending. He fails, but did he really fail? Okay, viewer, you figure it out yourself. Is helping another being a failure? So he did fail, but from a different perspective, he he was noble. He did the right thing by helping another being. So it's another one of those Rorschach. Viewer, please think about this. You know, if you think about it deeply enough, it gets into what is success, what is failure, and you could make a very good case for saying he failed the little part, but he was a great big winner where it really is important to win, helping somebody else. So you could say that. Or if you're cynical, you could say, hey, that jerk failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there was another scene I remember in, in that episode. I remember writing this and saying to myself, oh, this is going to be a cool scene. Uh, it's a scene, and I'm paraphrasing, this was a while ago, it was a scene between Wesley and Picard. And I'll paraphrase the dialogue. Picard is saying to Wesley, hey, Wesley, there's a dinner for our visitor. I'd like you to come. And Wesley says, uh, sir... I can't go to the dinner. Picard says, Wesley, why? I'd like you to go to the dinner. Wesley says, Captain, I failed you and I failed the Enterprise. And then Picard says, Wesley, don't tell anyone. It's between us, but I also failed. And then he gets into something he failed at. I can't remember what it was. That was another cool moment because it's an admission of, we're human beings, we've all got frailties, we've all got failures, and the trick is to overcome those failures, learn from them, and keep going. You know, every human being has failures, obstacles, flaws, Uh, that's not anything to be ashamed of, it's something to learn from and move forward and be heroic and overcome it. Uh, And that's what the scene was really about. You know, there was the text and the subtext. And the subtext was Picard admits to Wesley, he too is a human being with frailties. And that's a way to connect. You know, there's somebody said, a philosopher, somebody, that every human being has, uh, what's the word, flaws or gaps. And light shines through those gaps so that we can connect with each other as human beings. And I think that's very astute and very correct and very moving. Uh, You know, I connect most with other human beings most powerfully, most dramatically, most effectively. When I reveal some of my flaws and they share some of their flaws, we kind of give each other advice and that's where you connect. You don't connect on, hey, I drove this cool car. Oh, yeah, I drove this cool car. Hey, here's a photo of me eating at a 52 dollars plate restaurant. <laughs> oh, here's a photo of me at a 62 dollars plate restaurant. know that kind of crap mm-hmm. is not where you connect with another human being. Where you connect is where you show the flaws, the other person shows the flaws, you help each other with them, you have compassion for them, you have empathy for them, and they give you the same in return that's why I thought it was a cool scene. Uh, and Picard, who's a captain, and Wesley, who's usually Mr. Perfect, admit their humanity, admit their flaws. And that's why it was a powerful scene. And, and Patrick Stewart said to me once, you know, Sandy, that was my favorite scene of the whole first series. Now, he may have been saying that to be nice to me, because uh, he's a phenomenally nice guy. He may have been saying that because in the next episode, his real favorite scene came up uh, but but I loved the scene, and he he really seemed to like the scene. There were a lot of scenes after that scene that were probably better scenes you know the the, the killer episode, the killer great episode for me of uh, Star Trek Next Generation. I wish I had written and was brilliant, but I did not write. I wish I could have written that. It's called The Inner Light. Oh, yeah. And I was crying at the end of that thing. All of us. I, I was like, man, oh, man. I can't remember the writer, but that writer ripped my heart out.
0: The scene you're talking about, I think, was very pivotal. and It was like the beginning of Picard and Wesley's father-son friendship relation, that bond that they made, I think. That, that was the first time he wasn't just a kid on the bridge and... You know, it was more of a like they were a team.
1: Yeah, you know that's a kind of bond. As I mentioned before, happens when you let your force fields down and you let your humanity and your flaws show to another human being. The force fields go down, and reality takes its place. There is no connection with hey. My Rolls-Royce is tan. Oh, yeah, well, my Rolls-Royce is black, and it's newer. There's no connection there. As a matter of fact, there might be some uh, underlying hostility that you're showing off or pretending to be Mr. Hotshot. I'll tell you a story about a Rolls-Royce that is kind of interesting and funny to me. Uh, Rolls-Royce story. Gene Roddenberry, I was in the building just outside Gene Roddenberry's office. And Gene was telling me a story. It was a real story. I don't know how it came up, but this was a story. He said, Sandy, funniest thing happened to me a couple of days ago. Oh, what happened, Gene? You know, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, and my Rolls Royce hit another Rolls Royce. Nobody got hurt, but we dented in each other's cars, and it, it looked pretty messy. So here we were, smashed together, luckily nobody got hurt, two Rolls Royces, two great big Rolls Royces, and I think he he may have had a tan one, I forget, and he told me that as people drove by the two smashed Rolls Royces on Sunset Boulevard, they would applaud. (laughs) And what they were applauding at is, hey, you pompous guys who have more money than you need, we're glad you got a little reality going on here. But but Gene thought it was very funny. He laughed at it. I laughed at it. and It is kind of funny. You know, if, if it was a Camry that was 10 years old that smashed into a Camry that was five years old, nobody would be laughing. But it's funny when two great big Rolls Royces kind of dent each other up. And you want to know something? If I was driving by on Sunset Boulevard, I would have laughed and waved. Also,
0: mm. it's one of those things where you see it and you're like, uh, "Karma, maybe." <laughs>
1: you know, it's I. I do not have a Rolls Royce. <laughs> I would never get one. Uh, you know, it's a pompous kind of thing to do. Mm. You know, get get a car that's maybe a hundred thousand bucks less or two hundred
0: thousand
1: bucks <laughs> less. You, buy some food for a homeless guy yeah or or 20 homeless guys Mm -hmm. you know there's something pompous about anybody driving a rolls royce Mm -hmm. uh however gene roddenberry kind of knew it and was laughing at himself
0: well that's good yeah yeah i'm a big nerd i drive a pt cruiser so
1: i I, (laughs) i i hate to admit this But I drive a Camry.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah, Toyota. Those are nice.
1: I love my Camry. Everybody's always telling me, Sandy, get a new car, get a new (laughs) car. I love my Camry. You know, I've I've tried really high-tech cars, and this is going to sound strange from a guy who writes science fiction, but I think there's too much tech in the new cars, Uh, and it's not yet perfected. Even still, I test drove a Tesla. I test drove another car where you talk to the car and the car talks back to you and the car wasn't talking to me properly (laughs) and it irritated me, you know, didn't you hear me? I said, (laughs) do this. The car didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So there's enough in life to irritate me. I don't need my car tech to irritate (laughs) me too. And I I remember it's a very nice, sweet voice who completely misunderstood me (laughs) and didn't do what I asked for. So, you know, like, there's enough real-life stuff to get me upset and irritated. I don't need it in my car, too. With my Camry, turn it on, it goes. The end.
0: Did you see that story about the guy who passed out drunk and the car was driving him home because it was on autopilot or whatever?
1: No, I did not yeah. know that. It that is, that's interesting. That's and, a great story. I, I think we're definitely headed for you know cars that drive themselves, mm-hmm. but we're not yet there. When I test drove the Tesla, you know, thinking about maybe getting one of those, it was a beautiful car and a beautifully designed car. And a, just the a, a design of it was like a piece of art. It was just phenomenally well-designed. But as I was test driving it, I was scared and nervous. I was saying to myself, holy mackerel, I'm test driving a car worth so much money I better not dent this or get into an accident. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very uncomfortable driving that Tesla.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, it was as, as beautiful and high tech as it was. I, I did not enjoy driving it.
0: Too much stress.
1: Too much stress for me.
0: You, you, the whole time you're in a supermarket, you'll be worrying somebody's going to push a shopping cart into it.
1: Oh, um, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it's it's it's. Yeah, it was too much stress, and I was happy when the test drive was over because I did not enjoy it.
0: Hmm.
1: As, as beautiful a car as it was, I did not enjoy it. So I've kept my – I've test drove a bunch of new cars. I've kept my Camry, though, for several years. Uh, and I just noticed today that it looks like in the back seat my dog threw up. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, exactly. If it was a Tesla – Or a Rolls-Royce and my dog threw up in the back seat that would be a big situation going on. Big deal. Yeah, but right now to Cameron, he could throw up again. It's fine. And there's there's something to be said for not caring about things that really don't deserve to be cared about.
0: We don't need that kind of stress in life, right?
1: There's plenty of other stuff that (laughs) will stress us out. You know, all kinds of stuff that will be genuine stressors. A dog throwing up in the car. I love my dog. I love my car. I hope he feels better. One of these days, I'll get that stuff out of the (laughs) backseat.
0: You were a story editor on Next Gen for the first few seasons, right?
1: Uh, I was the staff writer uh, for Star Trek Next Generation for the first season. After that, I became the story editor for a lot of their video games, Star Trek video games, and I also co-wrote a Star Trek novel, so I went from staff writer on Next Generation to story editor for the Star Trek video games and also co-wrote uh, a novel. And when you're story editor for the video games, it's a big, big, big job. I, I mentioned before, because the scripts are huge. You know, on a TV show, an our script is relatively small, on a video game, it's a stack, a very high stack of scripts because there's so many different ways the story can go. Uh, but, you know, Star Trek Borg, as I mentioned, was one that I was a story editor for. Vulcan's Fury, I remember story editing. There was another one called Starfleet Academy that I was story editor for and wrote some of it. And Bill Shatner was actually in that. Mm, yeah, uh, You know, Starfleet Academy is a very cool concept. You, as a player, were in Starfleet Academy, in the game, And if you messed up, you got booted out of Starfleet Academy. And if you did well in Starfleet Academy, the video game, uh, the William Shatner character, who we all know who he is, uh, Captain Kirk, would give you a diploma. And you got a diploma or something like that at the end of the game. William Shatner actually was in the game, And there was another actor from the original series who was in the game. I cannot remember which actor it was, one of the regular characters. And I wrote some of Mr. Shatner's dialogue, and I edited the rest of the scripts. And I call him Mr. Shatner because the guy is so brilliant and accomplished. I don't feel I deserve to call him Bill. (laughs) You know, even, even though I couldn't, he he would be fine with it. You know, you, you don't call William Shatner Bill, even though you work with the guy. But mm-hmm. I remember very vividly the first time I met him on the set, you know, he came over to me and he said, Sandy, hi, thank you for working on this uh, project. I appreciate it. I go, yes, Ms. Shatner, it's great to work with you, blah, blah, blah. And he says... Sandy, i got to tell you something. You look way too young to be a writer. Uh, you know, and he's just such a witty, funny guy. The guy's a great guy, you know, very nice, very brilliant guy, generous. You know, he – as a college professor, I called him and said, hey, Ms. Shatner, I still don't call him, Bill. Would you do an interview over the phone with me that uh, my college students could be a part of asking questions and that kind of thing? He said, yeah, sure, Sandy. Why not? You know, the guy doesn't have to do that. He gives to charity. He gives up his time. Very, very cool guy.
0: Very cool. I, I, w- I met him for 13 seconds.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> and it cost me. How did me... those 13 seconds go?
0: It was pretty good. He looked at me and nodded and I said, thank you. <laughs> and
1: how was the nod. Was it a good nod?
0: Yeah, he was in a good mood, so it was nice. It was one of those uh, photo ops, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think the guy is a super guy. If you look at his career, he's got a phenomenal career. He's still going, still going, working on projects. Just a few years ago, I think he tried to ride a motorcycle across the United States. It, it yeah. didn't work, Yeah, but, but you've got to give it to a guy his mm. age tries to drive a motorcycle across the country. (laughs) He he hasn't
0: slowed down, that's for sure.
1: Which is phenomenal, and he comes from a pretty humble background. I read one of his autobiographies. Uh, It may have been his only autobiography. Uh, He's
0: had a bunch. I think I've read them all.
1: Well, in one that I read, he recounts how he lived in his either truck or car when he was starting out. And I remember saying to myself, that is as cool as you can get. If you start at the bottom and you work your way through the obstacles to get to the top, that's cool. You know, if you are given all kinds of pluses and you don't have obstacles, that's not as cool.
0: Hmm. I want to say that was either Get a Life or Star Trek Memories.
1: Yeah, I can't remember, but that was one of the parts of... The autobiography that really struck me, that stuck out to me. Bill Shatner at one point lived in his car and or truck. I can't remember which one. know, yeah, Actually, that's what almost every story is about. Your central character, your hero overcoming obstacles. And it's a way to connect with the viewer and in effect to say, hey, viewer, we've all got these obstacles. Let's be heroic and overcome them. Deal with them the best we can. Deal with them with some style, with some intelligence. Don't let it crush you.
0: Mm. While we're on the subject, uh, I wanted to ask you, since I have you, about Star Trek, The Secret of Vulcan Fury. That was one of my first disappointments in life. Like I had s- I watched the trailer online back then when it was dial up and you had to wait for it to buffer and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. like I waited and I waited and I waited and it just never happened. What happened with that? That was not my fault. Well, of course not, no. <laughs> I, Why did the game never come out?
1: You know something? It was so long ago, hmm. I don't even remember.
0: Uh, th- I wanted to ask, uh, is there is there like a script around? Is there a story somewhere? Because –
1: I, I'm pretty sure I remember reading a, a big script on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be wrong on this. I could be very wrong, but I think DC Fontan- Fontana, Dorothy Fontana mm-hmm.
0: wrote the script. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. I Again, it was a long time ago. So I, I, I'm about 98% sure uh, Dorothy wrote the script.
0: Mm. She's uh, good. She's good.
1: And very, very nice person. Really nice person. Uh What happened to it, why it didn't come out, I don't even remember.
0: Mm, Interesting. Was it good? Do you remember being good?
1: (laughs) If you want to know something? Yeah. I remember saying to myself, wow, this is a cool title, Mm -hmm. and and I do not remember too much more about it. Mm, Okay. So I'm sorry about that. Oh, no worries.
0: I'm always trying to solve the mystery. I've been Googling that forever. So, uh, you know. But uh, we'll find out one day, maybe. I don't know. I just I, I wish they would have turned it into a book or something, maybe like like uh, you did with uh, Starfleet Academy, right?
1: Yes, uh, yeah. I co-wrote a novel with Diane Carey, uh, Starfleet Academy, based on the video game. It was Starfleet Academy. I knew was a cool idea. Uh, the Borg thing I knew was cool. Vulcan's Fury. I just don't remember what it was about, frankly. I'm I'm guessing it was about <laughs> Vulcans who were furious.
0: The the computer uh, generated stuff at the time looked amazing, and I know they recorded some uh, voices for it. So I don't know.
1: Well, with Starfleet Academy, uh, as I remember, and again this is a long time ago, as I remember going on the set, and they they recorded Starfleet Academy in the studios across the street from Paramount. Uh, they did not record it at Paramount. It was, there's a big studio right across the street from Paramount. They recorded it there, and I remember going into the set, and the set was a huge set that was all green screen. Uh, and, you know, the, it was it's an interesting technological kind of process where they can put backgrounds and, you know, tables and other things on the green screen. And at the time, I remember one of the technical people saying to me, you know, Sandy, this is really cool and different because it used to be that you could not move the camera with a green screen effect, but now we can move the camera around. And by computer, the background adjusts to the movement so it still looks realistic. So at the time, it was a very big deal, and if my memory is correct, it was a long time ago, the whole thing had green screen background. Yeah, green screen is also called, or was called chroma key, it might still uh, be called chroma key, but it's basically an effect where you have a screen in back of the humans, and through technological process, you can uh, put a a mountain behind them, and it's really a, a picture or video of the mountain that meshes with the green screen, or you could put snow coming down in the background. And it's, you know, it's a device they use on TV news a lot, they use it in movies a lot, uh, and on Starfleet Academy, the big breakthrough was you could now move the camera and the computer compensates for the movement so the background looks real and cool and doesn't shift weirdly. So it was like, at the time, it was a whole big deal. It was very big budget for Starfleet Academy. I remember a very big budget for a video game. I remember originally, if my memory's correct, correct, uh, Spock was supposed to be in that with William Shatner, uh, but something happened uh, and uh, Spock did not come. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I want to say it was either uh, um, James Doohan or George it might, I, Yeah, I think it was, oh, you know something? I think it was George
1: Takei. It, what, I don't think it was uh, Scotty.
0: I haven't played it in probably 20 years, but I remember it being really good and watching all the cutscenes like together. I would figured out a way to browse the CD-ROM to watch yeah. all the videos in order.
1: Yeah, I haven't written it or edited it in about 20 years. Um, You haven't played it in 20 years. Uh, I might pick it up again, though. Yeah, no, you know, it it was a cool idea. When you have a cool idea, it kind of grabs you at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and that definitely grabbed me at the beginning. Uh, The Borga grabbed me at the beginning. Not everything grabs you. Mm -hmm. Not everything says, this is going to be cool.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. I had the... um, honor of reading it a little bit over a year ago I think you had sent it to me and I read it cover to cover and I found it very interesting your life in Hollywood television and uh, writing and the people you have as friends and people you've worked with and uh, could you tell uh, us a little bit about your book and uh, for people who haven't read it um, maybe talk a little bit about it
1: yeah absolutely I'd love to. Uh... The most, well, this is important to me, but I'll tell you, I've done a lot of writing, a lot of different kinds of writing, you know, Star Trek Next Generation, Quantum Leap, Fame, uh, on and on and on. This book that I just recently wrote about a year ago is one of the favorite pieces of writing I've ever done. Uh, It's called Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You. It's on Amazon. You know, you could look it up under the title or under my name, S-A-N-D-Y-F-R-I-E-S. But I'm very, very proud of the book. And I'll tell you what the book is. It's a gritty, real look at what really goes on behind the scenes in movies and television. You've never read a book like this. It also gets into tricks and kind of ways that nobody realizes of how to succeed in TV, in movies, and in any career. You know, there are tricks I've done, and I look back and I go to myself, wow, that was cool. I'll bet nobody's ever done that. And I have those tricks discussed in the book. Again, it works for any career, but especially works well for TV and movies. I've known a lot of people in my career that I write about and I talk about their secrets, not, you know, not personal secrets because that would not be right, but their secrets to success. You know, one of my friends who's passed away is Sam Simon, who was the co-creator of the Simpsons. And I talk about him. I talk about what he did that made him successful. Another person I knew very, very well was Joe Barbera always call him Mr. Barbera because I have such great respect for him. Passed away, obviously. Uh, There were secrets to his success that were phenomenal. And again, not personal secrets, secrets he'd be okay with people knowing. I write about that. So it's about how to get ahead in your career and how to live a life that when your life is over and you've got your final scene, and your final scene is, oh my gosh, I'm going to croak any second now, mm. and that tuna fish sandwich is still stuck in my back teeth. <laughs> but I'm glad I have back teeth. Mm-hmm. But it's time to look back at my life and see, was I happy with what I did or not? It gives you my version and my suggestions on how to live a life you'll be happy with when you see it's your time to do your final scene. You know, you're we're going to croak now scene. Mm. So it's, you know, it's about life. It's about career secrets. It's about people I've known, Gene Roddenberry, Joe Barbera, Sam Simon, uh, on and on and on. I've been very lucky to know a lot of very cool people. Uh, A bunch of people, you know, I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, I'm a college professor. I also write, but my students read the book and after they've gotten their grades, so there's nothing in it for them to suck <laughs> up to, after they've gotten their grades, I, I actually had one student come up to me, a really bright student, cool guy. He said, uh, Professor Freeze, I didn't want to say this before the class was finished, but I'll say it now. Uh, if I said it before, you would think I'm just trying to suck up to you, but I loved that book. I started reading it, and I could not finish – I could not do anything until I finished reading it. You know, I picked it up, I started reading it, and I had it go through. It a great book. It was really moving. It was really – gave me a lot of great ideas about life and careers, and I've heard that from a lot of students. You know, uh, two students of mine out of many, many students did not like it, but I think those were the ones that got F's. <laughs> But uh it, it's a cool book. The other thing about it is it's written in a way that has comedy, way that has practical advice, career advice, life advice. You know, I pack in everything that I've learned about how to have a cool life. Now has my life been perfect? No. I've had stuff go on that's been bad. Uh, you know, illness, people dying, There's no way to avoid that kind of thing. But if I were to croak five minutes from now, and I certainly hope I don't, I would be able to look back and go, you know, I'm happy with how I did my life. I'm real happy. Did I make mistakes? I did. Did I make stupid mistakes? I did. Am I okay with that? Yeah, because everybody does that. Did I have some heavy hardship stuff? Everybody does. But I pulled... Off some amazing accomplishments, had a lot of fun. Was the best person I could be. Time to croak. Hope I go to heaven. End. Fade out. Fade to black. Commercial.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I would agree with uh, what what you're saying about the book. It, uh, for me, I enjoyed it. I I was able to read it uh, in one day, and I, that's not me normally. But normally, I procrastinate reading. But I just enjoyed it and was sucked in right away by it. And I really like that. It was such a, like a, from a personal perspective. Uh-huh. And like, uh, you were saying, it's, uh, the, the Sam Simon part got me all choked up. And I think maybe a page later I was laughing again. So.
1: Yes. People have told me that too, you know, this, the part about Sam Simon, the co-creator of the Simpsons, you know, he was a really, really accomplished guy, really talented guy. Uh, you know, the the people would, when they talked about him, they would say, yeah, he's a lucky guy. What a lucky guy. Uh, He had a very, very sad end of his life. Uh, He he got a real, real difficult type of cancer that just inch by inch ate away at him. And, you know, as I was writing it, I was getting kind of weepy eyed. Uh, But he was a phenomenal writer. And, I remember the ending of that section too. You know, it's—I'm not even going to say it because it's just too sad. But the ending of the Sam Simon section still brings tears to my eyes. However, however, a few, a few paragraphs later, or a few pages later, there's laughter. And you know, I guess that's a metaphor for life. You know, there's things that bring you to tears. There's things that make you laugh. You learn some things, you evolve, or you don't, and then you die. I don't want to get into it because it's just too much of a down situation, but I describe what happened at the end. Basically, he had a terrific life. You know, He created a lot of cool stuff. He made millions of people laugh with his work. Uh, he worked on Taxi. I think he was a showrunner on Taxi. He worked on Cheers. So yeah, he, the guy made millions and millions and millions of people laugh with his writing. Simpsons, to me, that's a pretty terrific life.
0: Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of good lessons in it, and it's a, just a really enjoyable read. So. Yeah,
1: thank you. And I'm, I'm going to mention again, because I love the book. It's called Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You. It's on Amazon. Uh, you could go for that. I've uh, just put it into the search bar on Amazon or you can look up S A N D Y F R I E S spelled like Fries and you'll see that book. It's um I think it's one of the three things I'm most proud of, of writing. You know, it's I I wrote it a year ago and I was proud of it because I remember saying to myself, Wow, yeah, I could still write and it's good. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are times where you you doubt that. There are times where you go, Gosh, can I still write well? I know I did a month or two ago, but maybe that talent is no longer with me. Maybe things have, the energy has seeped away. Maybe the brain has changed. But it was, you know, and I hadn't written something for a couple of years. And I remember finishing that book and, and having students love it. A, another professor, a friend of mine, was really really very kind in in terms of what he said about it and how much he loved it and it was just nice to know that I could still write well, so that was that was kind of cool you know my eyesight is not quite as good uh, I can't run as fast, but that's one of the best things I've ever written in my life
0: that that's an amazing feeling too when you you finished a writing project and you like you know you're done, and you know, wow, you did a great job, and you just get that feeling of satisfaction, I think.
1: Yeah, and the other feeling is it's a great thing to have written because the book has the ability to change lives in a really, really positive way, and a really big way. Yeah, I, I apologize if I'm sounding self-congratulatory. Oh, no. Uh, But it's just something I'm really proud of. So the fact that I can connect with my students, with other people who read it, uh, anybody could read it, student, not student, wife, husband, kid, and I believe have a good chance of evolving based on it, doing better at career or life or whatever, Uh, and to have that kind of ability makes me proud. And I do believe in karma. I do believe in the fact that I think I've got a cosmic debt because I've overall had a great life. So it's nice to know that I'm kind of paying off my cosmic debt. And it's nice to know that hopefully if karma exists, I hope I'll get some really good karma off of this book. Hmm but I'm I'm very proud of it.
0: And we'll link to that in the show notes and people should be able to click it right from iTunes and go right to your book. So, yeah, thank
1: you. Thank you so yeah. much. You know, and whatever you could do to let people know about it, I I appreciate it. You know, like like I said, it's one of the best things I've ever written and it's really nice to know that you still have that ability and it was enjoyable to write. You know, it the writing just came really really easily and that doesn't happen on every writing assignment there's some assignments where you know at the beginning of quantum leap my hands blew up in rashes i was so nervous you know about writing for quantum leap because it was such an amazing show the book you know secrets your textbook will not tell you uh was so easy to write it just went through my brain onto the page very easily very enjoyably it was just one of the smoothest pieces of writing.
0: Uh, what are the other, some of the other projects that are right up there with your favorite projects?
1: I, I knew you were going to ask me
0: because
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's an obvious kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, okay, in addition to the book, let me f- think a little bit. I wrote a script for Fame, which was a, a great show. It was an MGM show about uh, student, students at the School of the Arts. And that was a really good script. I did, and I apologize for c- congratulating myself, but I can tell you there's some stuff that I wrote that was garbage, so that even bad. <laughs> but that fame script is a really good script. And that fame script got me the job on "Star Trek: Next Generation." Gene Roddenberry read the fame fa- the script, and he really loved how I handled character and dialogue. And that's how I got hired onto Star Trek: The Next Generation. And the script was such a cool script. Uh, there was a show called Saint Elsewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Love which, that show.
1: Uh, it was a phenomenal show. You know, it was. It's at a hospital in uh, I think it's Massachusetts. Uh, and it's such a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant show. Howie Mandel was on it. Denzel Washington was on it. A lot of Big stars got their start on that show. Uh, One review called The Best Dramatic Show in the History of Television. Uh,
0: Without spoiling the ending for people, uh, what did you think of the ending of the series?
1: Oh, man, oh, man. They had a different ending. I thought the very last episode was kind of a cheat. However the whole show was so brilliant and stellar. It can't be perfect. And the fact that they didn't get the ending to my degree of satisfaction, big deal. You know, like they were, I think they may have been the best show dramatically in the history of television. Also dramatically, uh, but the ending I wasn't nuts about, there were a lot of fans who didn't like the ending. There were a lot of fans who thought the ending was kind of an easy way mm. to do the ending. and you you know what I'm talking about. yeah, but I gotta tell you this, if you want if anybody out there wants to watch a phenomenal, brilliant show, uh, I got it on Amazon Prime. Uh, I believe the first season is on Amazon Prime, maybe a little more. Beautiful, beautiful show to watch. I, I've been re-watching it just the past couple of months. A phenomenal show. But anyway, the, the same script was read by one of the producers on St. Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the producer loved it. Uh, the producer called my agent and said, you know, we'd like to hire Sandy to work on St. Elsewhere. We need a female staff writer. (laughs) And my agent said, Oh, gosh, Sandy is short for Sanford. His nickname is Sandy. His real name is Sanford. It's a him. It's not a woman writer. Mm. And I did not get it.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's that's good to know that you still have that uh, ability that uh, they actually thought you were.
1: Well, you know something? In my office, I have a picture of the same uh, elsewhere uh, actors. And when I go into my office every morning, well, Monday through Friday, first thing I'll do is I'll look at – what do I look at? I look at my Star Trek little dolls and stuff. And I'll look at the stuff, Little Dolls I wrote for Hanna-Barbera. I'll look at the Spider-Man things I wrote for the animated Spider-Man. I'll look at all those things in my office. This is going to sound hokey, but as I look at each one, I say, thank you, God, for giving me this chance. Thank you for giving me the chance to do that. And the last thing I look at is St. Elsewhere. And I didn't write for St. Elsewhere, but the producers liked my writing so much that they wanted me to write on the show. uh, And I thank God for that, too. You know, there's two reasons I do that. One is to be thankful to the deity, and the other is, unfortunately, I have to remind myself each morning, okay, I did good stuff. I'm a good guy. Okay, that's great. I've accomplished good stuff. Okay, that's, that's nice. I have to remind myself that I've accomplished stuff because regardless of what I've accomplished, there's always the thought in the back of my head, am I good enough? Did I do this good enough? Did I do enough of this? Did I do enough of that? So after I look at those photos uh, and the dolls, there's a photo of me and a few presidents of the United States.
0: Oh, yeah. And you I- met uh, Bill Clinton, right? I did, too. He's a nice guy.
1: Very nice guy. Yeah, I met Bill Clinton. I, I spent a lot of time with uh, Jimmy Carter. I got a very nice photo that's inscribed from President Ford. So I've met three presidents, spent a lot of time with them. So I look at those pictures, and those get my ego into a form where I could say, okay, you did good stuff, Sandy. You're appreciative of it. Now go have a good day.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: you know, you would think, and it would be logical that I wouldn't need to do that, but I do.
0: Hmm.
1: But after I do that, I also ask God for some stuff.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> Thank not, you, while uh, you're at it.
1: <laughs> if, and while, while you're listening, if you have another <laughs> second, could you do this for me, please? Oh, uh, so, and, and I'll tell you another story. This is, this is a, a little miracle story, too. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I remember seeing the movie Fame. And I loved that movie so much. It was a it was a feature film, two-hour feature film. It was a beautifully written movie. It was a beautifully acted movie. It was just a great, 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 great movie. And I was new in L.A. At that point, I had never written anything for TV yet. After the movie, I remember saying, Dear Deity please, please, please let me have the opportunity to write something as good as Fame. And a few years later, I was writing for Fame, the television show. I wrote the season opener. I created a couple of characters. I asked to write for Fame, and I got it. Now, am I making more of a deal out of it than I should? You know, you might... Make a case for that. I think it was a little miracle.
0: It's a great show. I got to talk to Debbie Allen about it not too long ago, and because uh, she was on an episode of Quantum Leap. But I was a big fan of Fame, both the movie and the TV series yeah. as a kid. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was, stuff. it was. It was.
1: It was on, and it had Fame had a lot of incarnations. It was a movie. It was on NBC. Then it was in first run syndication. It came back again. I think a few years ago, It was a movie again. Uh, You know, it's one of those concepts that's so solid that it can come back. Uh, But I asked to write for fame, and I got to write for fame, Uh, so that was, you know, I see a lot of these things as as little miracles. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I'll give you one more, and I hope it doesn't sound sappy, but when I I lived at first in New York, uh, before I moved to L.A., A friend of mine knew somebody at ABC News and said, hey, Sandy, you want to meet this guy at ABC News? Uh, So we went into ABC News. We saw the anchorman's office for ABC News. And I remember there was a picture of the anchorman with the president of the United States. And they were walking down the street talking to each other. I said, boy, that is so cool. A picture of the anchorman with the president of the United States walking down the street together. Oh, and they're talking. and They're having a good time. Oh, boy, I, that would be so cool if I could do that someday. In my office, I've got a photo very similar to the photo I saw in the anchorman's office of me with Jimmy Carter. And it's a very similar photo. You know, maybe it's coincidence. Maybe I'm making more people <laughs> out of it than I should. Or maybe it's another... Miracle, you know, who knows? I choose to think that there's some deity that does things for reasons we're not totally clear about.
0: How did that come about, hanging out with presidents? That's just not something that happens to everybody.
1: I've also done journalism writing. uh, And in addition, well, the thing with uh, President Ford happened – I, was, I did freelance writing for the Los Angeles Times. They had a, a children's section, so I did mostly stuff for the children's section. Uh, so I did a lot of freelance writing for the Los Angeles Times. And I asked my editor if I could do a piece on Gerald Ford. And she said, oh yeah, yeah, Sandy, that's fine. You can, you can do that. Uh, and I did the interview with President Ford over the phone. It was a very good interview. My favorite question to him was, hey, Mr. President, what was your favorite thing about being president? What was the most fun? And he said, you know, Sandy, I really love butter pecan ice cream. And any time I went on Air Force One, they had as much butter pecan ice cream (laughs) as I wanted. (laughs) So I remember that, and I thought that was cute. It did not run in the Los Angeles Times, but President Ford liked the interview so much that he sent me a picture of himself with a nice inscription. Uh, I'm trying to think what it'd say. to Sandy Freeze, with my admiration and respect. Gerald Ford. That's, that's one of the things I look at in the morning to get my ego going and to be thankful for. So that's the Gerald Ford thing. The Jimmy Carter thing. Uh, you know, I, I like to do different kinds of writing, so I've also done journalism writing. Uh, the Jimmy Carter thing, I was A radio reporter and I was covering his campaign for president and I got to hang out with him quite a bit. I had two one-on-one lunches with him. Uh, Very cool guy. I remember over one of the lunches he had milk and a tuna sandwich And, and it was always interesting to me that a guy who later became the most powerful guy on the planet would have milk and a tuna sandwich for lunch, you would think he would be more interesting or more elaborate than that but i've I've heard I never met the second president Bush, but I've heard that president Bush's favorite meal was baloney sandwich
0: <laughs>
1: so even when you're president i guess I guess your tastes don't change and and don't differ from almost anybody uh, but carter very dedicated guy very Very well read, very well read. I've heard from reliable sources that anytime he's written a book, he really writes it. He doesn't have a ghost write it. I've read a few of his books and they're very, very well written. And the thing about Carter that's cool is, you know, his presidency was not stellar, but he is the best example of a president and what a president should do after they leave the White House. You know, he's done a lot of charity work. He's got a foundation, and he's very, very active to this day.
0: Yeah, I get the impression from him uh, out of most presidents is that he's just very kind, and he really cared, and and I think that shows through his actions of what he's done post-presidency.
1: You want to know something? That was a big, big read that I got from him, too, that he cared, and he was always trying to do the right thing. Uh, he's very religious guy. Uh, I think he still does Sunday lectures at his church in, I believe it's Plains, Georgia, P-L-A-I-N-S, and I think anybody could get in to hear him talk on Sundays uh, if you can, you know, beat the crowd, but very, very religious I remember some of the answers he gave me. I, I remember saying to myself, boy, this guy is a real guy who really wants to do the right thing for people in the United States. Another thing I remembered, and I always looked for little signs and little nuances in people to see what kind of people they are. We had one-on-one lunch, the tuna sandwich and the milk that he had. And I remember him genuinely without making a big deal out of it, saying thank you to the waiter anytime the waiter brought something. And to me, that says a lot. I don't think he was showboating or anything, but that says that he will be polite and respectful to everybody, not just somebody who can get him some donation or do something for him. And he was... I just – the big feeling I got out of him was he wanted to do the right thing in a genuine way. Uh, And I did not get that from a lot of politicians.
0: Yeah, he was a rare one.
1: Yeah, he was very rare. The fact that he's still working, the fact that he's written so many books, the fact that his post-presidency is just so phenomenal – you got to give the guy a lot of credit for that. And the fact that he's still going is is amazing. He's a very smart guy, very well-read guy. I don't know how it came up, but he was talking over lunch about Bob Dylan and some Bob Dylan lyrics. Uh, anything I would bring up that might have some kind of literary reference he knew about, very well-read, very smart, very well-intentioned. Uh, I liked also that he was short, because I'm pretty short, so I liked the mm-hmm. fact that he was short, so that was nice. Uh, what else did I like about the guy? He was a peanut farmer. Yeah, I, I love the fact that the guy went from peanut farmer to Georgia governor to president of the United States. You know, to go from peanut farmer to the most powerful man on planet Earth, you've got to give the guy some applause for that. That's pretty cool. And uh, I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot.
0: Yeah, I'm a fan. Uh, Clinton, the first president I voted for, uh, he's a tall guy.
1: He's, yeah, he's very tall. Uh, he still looks phenomenal. You know, I think I mentioned it in my book, but he looks I, – I could be wrong, but he looks like he had face peels or something like that.
0: <laughs> Moisturizes, definitely. Uh,
1: I don't know what, what he's using, but the guy looks really great and you know the guy looks amazingly good
0: absolutely uh when when i when i met him you know i, I prefer women but uh no wait
1: I, wait a second i want to make it clear i prefer women too
0: but i was enamored by him when i met him like he had a presence where i don't know it's hard to explain just like an it factor an energy about him
1: yeah he did he had a presence he connected with people uh
0: how did you meet him? How did that come up?
1: He's a friend of a friend, and we spent time together uh, when we were – where was it? Uh, let me think. It was, it was one of the Virgin Islands or Bahamas or something. We, I'm trying to remember. What, oh, Cayman Islands. It was the Cayman Islands. Uh, so we spent some time together in Cayman Islands. And uh, nice guy, very, very bright, amazingly well-kept, you know, for his age. Uh, We, You know, we just hung out, went shopping and walked around. Crowds followed him everywhere. He had Secret Service guys with him, you know, the two Secret Service big black buses. Not not buses, sort of SUVs or whatever. Uh, It was kind of fascinating just to see the stuff that the Secret Service does to protect these people. Uh, The Secret Service guys... That's a whole amazing thing that goes on. You know, they they usually wear sunglasses so people don't know where they're looking. They have these earpieces. They often have a microphone on their wrist that they could talk to each other. Uh, They always look very, very grim and concerned. (laughs) You know, they got to be ready for anything to happen. Uh, And I remember... I remember thinking there was one local police woman who was in back of us and her job was to walk backwards to make sure nobody would rush up to to the president and the secret service agent who was by his side just kept saying to her, watch the back, watch the back, don't let anybody come up. And I, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, being a president You're in constant danger, and these Secret Service guys, their job is to lay down their life for you, which which is a noble thing to do. But all the mechanics of the Secret Service are fascinating, too. I I once, while covering a president, saw the back of a Secret Service agent car, and as I'm thinking of it, I'm not going to tell you what was in the back of it because I I don't want to get in trouble. But when I saw what was in the back in the trunk, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. (laughs) Uh, But I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, I don't blame
0: you. Uh, Were were you vetted before you were able to just hang out with Bill?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was vetted. You know, they get your social security number. uh, They look into your background. With Carter, they had an interesting thing. I'm guessing they still have this. Uh, But the Secret Service agents with Carter, and I believe they still do today, they have a little pin that they wear in their lapel, and it could be a triangle or a square, it could be a red square with a green dot in the middle, you know, it could be almost any kind of little pin. They change it every day, uh, and the people who wear those pins are either the Secret Service agents or the people who are vetted enough and okay enough to get close to the president or the candidate. So I I had that pin for several days and I'll tell you a story that I think was, I did something embarrassing and possibly stupid, but I'm proud of it. What did I do? Okay, I had the pin for the day and they switch it every day, I think. and I hope it's okay for me to be saying this stuff, uh, if any Secret Service person wants to call in <laughs> and uh, ask Albie to delete this, please do it, I'm sure Albie will do it. Absolutely. But, but for now, keep it in. So anyway, I had the pin for the day, and I was able to get close to Carter. And I needed to get a quote from him that day for a story I was working on. So... He's this this was either dumb of me or cool of me, or both. So he's walking down a path, sort of a you know, narrow cement path. On either side he's got a secret service agent and a secret service agent in back of him. So I've got the pin, so I'm allowed to get close to him. And I gotta get a quote from him for a story I'm working on. So I go in front of him, and he has to stop because it's a narrow path. And I say, uh At the time, it was uh, ex-governor, so I say, Governor Carter, what effect has the press had on your campaign? And I stopped him. You know, he couldn't go around me because it was such a narrow path. He'd have to walk on the grass. It would look weird. So I said to him, uh, again, the question was, what effect has the press had on your campaign? And he looks at me really pissed off, and he says, you know, Other than stopping me when I'm trying to get somewhere, they've had no effect at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And yeah, so I pissed him off, but for some reason I thought it was cool. And another thing about Carter was he had a vein in his forehead, Hmm. and people told me you could really tell when he was angry because the vein would throb. And I remember seeing that vein throbbing when I asked him the question. (laughs) that's that's
0: a good indicator
1: yeah i got them i got a guy who very powerful person who i got angry at me (laughs) however a day later he was fine yeah it was okay
0: it happens but it makes for a cool story
1: it was a great story you know like how many people have had uh one of the most powerful people on the planet angry at them
0: uh, the only the only Secret Service agent I ever met was uh, Clint Hill, uh, the guy. Oh, who, I know who that guy. Yeah, is. Yeah, I went to one of his uh, uh, speaking engagements in uh, Dallas, and it was very interesting what they go through and how they live their lives uh, with presidents and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining it's it's not an easy life because you're constantly on guard. What, what did what did he talk about?
0: Uh, the day in uh, Dealey Plaza where he had to jump up and you know cover Jackie and, and then, uh, just daily life with, uh, the, he was with a few other presidents and the differences between them and what his daily uh, life was. And it was uh-huh. a, good, a good book. He has, it's called the five presidents if you're interested in them. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. But, uh, I think you might have a, uh, political thriller, uh, novel or something in you.
1: There could be cause am fascinated by secret service. I'm, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an FBI agent mm. And I learned that you had to either at that time have a law degree or an accounting degree to be an FBI agent. And so that was the end of that. <laughs>
0: uh, writing I, well, writing I, degree I, doesn't help?
1: No, not at all. I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to be a lawyer. But I did want to be an FBI agent, so it did not work out. But I remember visiting the FBI you know, offices in uh, Washington, D.C. They had tours. Uh, I, they've always struck me as very cool people. You know, they're so focused and dedicated and brave and, you know, very, very fascinating, cool people.
0: Mm. Uh, looking at your credits uh, and uh, the the way you talked about how your agent can get you on something, um, did you, uh, when you first heard the news about the new Picard series coming out, did part of you think, hmm, maybe I should... Uh, give them a call or see if I can help out a little bit. Do you ever thought about going back into television writing? You know, part of me thought that.
1: And then that part of me said, nah, I don't really want to. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: The reason I don't really want to is because I've tried to, and I have done lots of different forms of writing. Uh, The only show on TV I, I could now get really jazzed about writing The only one is Family Guy.
0: Oh, I love that show.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a brilliant show, beautifully written. The dialogue is great. The tone of it is very unusual and original. Uh, It's a brilliantly written show. That's the only show I would get jazzed about writing for. The reason I would not really get that jazzed about writing for the Picard show, you know, at this point in my life, I've got two big goals. I've done a lot of writing, a whole lot of writing for a lot of different shows and a lot of different formats. At this point in my life, my big goal, two goals, this, this may sound hokey, is to enjoy my life as much as I possibly can and be as kind and loving as I possibly can. Those are my big two goals right now. You know, I'm a college professor, so obviously I want to be a terrific teacher. And I do my best for that, but I've done the writing thing. And I've done it to the point where I could say, yeah, yeah, I did good stuff. Congratulations to yourself, Sandy. Whenever you croak, you could be proud of yourself. So I've done it to that degree. I wrote the book, and I'm going to even mention the name again, Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, available on Amazon. I'm proud of it. But anyway, I wrote the book, which was terrific. I don't have that big, big urge to write the way I did when I started. You know, when I started, it was, oh, I got to write for this show, I got to write for that show, oh, I'm writing for this show, this is so great, oh, blah, 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 blah. I wrote over 100 scripts that were produced, and comedy, animation, drama, any format that I wanted to, I was able to tackle and accomplish. And I just don't have the urge to do that very much, you know. The book came, and I was excited about the book, but I've had people ask me and say, you know, Sandy, would you like to write this? Would you like to write that? And I'm not—I'm just not that jazzed about it anymore.
0: Yeah, you got to have the uh, drive behind it, or it's no fun, and probably wouldn't be doing a uh, making a good product if you weren't jazzed about it.
1: If you enjoy what you're doing, and you're Really into what you're doing that shows in the writing. If you don't care that much about what you're doing, that shows in the writing. And, and it wouldn't be fair to work on any piece of writing unless I was really, really enthusiastic about it. And I, it, it, you know, people have asked me, "Would you like to write this? Would you like to write that?" And my answer is, I've done it you know now i'm now i'm attempting to do something else which is just enjoy my life as much as i can be as evolved as i can you know in terms of kindness and be a good professor and the reason i'm doing that is again you know scenes in tv shows and movies the dying scene where the character dies is always a fascinating scene to me and it's always dramatic Writers try to do it differently. I always try to think of my last scene in life and how it would play out and how I would want it to play out. And the last scene in my life, the way I would like that to play out, my dying scene, which everybody has, my scene would be I was as kind as I could be to people. I was as loving. I really enjoyed my life. And I did good work that connected with millions of people. Now it's time to croak. I could be happy having done that. Wow. And I've even, to make sure I'm on the right track, I've even asked people, does this make sense to you? Does that make sense? Is this last scene okay? And so far, everybody said, yeah, that seems like a good thing to go for. You know, how could you die bitter if you can say to yourself, I enjoyed my life with as much enjoyment and you know effort as I could, I was as loving as I could be, and I turned out work that made millions of people laugh, that taught some little lessons to millions of people, maybe made millions of people more spiritual or more evolved, so I've paid my cosmic debt I could not be bitter at dying if I could say that in my final scene, you know? And I I look at my life in the same structure as I look at a script or a novel. It's set up conflict resolution. You know, I'm happy with how I've done so far. Have I done some stupid things? Absolutely, but I'm okay because I corrected for them, and I learned from them. Uh, And everybody does stupid things. So, you know, I'm not at the phase now where a big, big, big part of my life is writing. You know, I've done it. Most of the time, I enjoyed it. Sometimes, I did not. Next, Next phase, let's go.
0: I don't I don't think you could uh, have a happier ending in life if you have those feelings and thoughts on on your last day.
1: Do, do you what do you think does it make sense as to what you think would be a good final scene?
0: Yeah, um it's it's very touching and amazing and it's um it's not a sad death, it's a happy death.
1: Yeah, you know, uh I believe there's a heaven hoping to go there. Uh You know, there are different ways people die. I I would guess a lot of people die bitter and regretful because they don't think of what they want their last scene to be. And I, I tell my students, okay guys, I recommend that after class at some time, you figure out what you want your last scene in life to be and then aim for that scene. I don't think a lot of people go through that thought process, which I think is a shame. Uh, And, you know, there are people... Sam Simon passed away in a dreadful kind of cancer. But the other part of his life was phenomenal. So, you know something I urge my students to do, and anybody listening to to this, I'm going to urge you take an hour or two, think it through, what do you want your last scene to be in the script that is your life, and then figure out how to make sure that that is your last scene. Uh, I urge people to do that, Uh, and I would guess very few people actually go through that process, maybe because it's difficult, or they're busy, or whatever.
0: Mm. I heard something similar uh, uh, many years ago. I think it was in a Tony Robbins book, something along those lines. Uh-huh. Um, imagine how you want your life to end. Do you want to be alone? and you know Maybe you've gotten your way on everything, and, and you've won, but you're alone, or do you want to be surrounded by your adult children and your grandchildren and your loved one. And that really did change my life. And it it changed my life in a direction to where I did want to get married, did want a family, and I did have a daughter. And and it made a, a big difference in my life instead of thinking about the now, thinking about how I want my whole story to play out.
1: Well, you know, you have thought about what you want your last scene to be. And you'll, whenever your time is about over, you know, hopefully, probably, you'll have your daughter with you, your friends with you. You'll have some great memories. And, you know, it's never happy to be ending mm. a life. But there are less sad ways to do it, I think. Uh, and I, I read your Facebook page because we're Facebook friends now.
0: Well, and- which I'm jazzed about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and i was I was reading through it last uh night, and you're doing a lot of very cool things, you know you are very very passionate about the work you do with your podcasts you're doing a great job that's cool you've got i believe it's a young daughter right
0: yep serenity named after a spaceship
1: very cool that's an amazing thing to do so you got a lot of cool stuff going on.
0: Mm, I try. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and you're a very, very, very good interviewer. I, I promise. You know, I listened to some of your interviews before I agreed to do this. And I said, wow, this guy is a very good interviewer. And the, the I think it was on a website, the podcast. I remember the design of the website was very cool. And uh, so you're doing cool stuff. You know, you got a passion and you're, working on something that you're passionate about. I hate to say it, but I don't think many people have that. You know, somebody, might have been a philosopher, said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And if that were my life, and it's not, I would have a horribly bitter end, you know. You know, uh, it's the last thing I want my life to be. Uh, you're you're passionate. You got things you're jazzed about. You're living a life that is the opposite of quiet desperation, uh, you know. And I hate to say it, but I think most men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. Do you think so? Or yeah, I
0: would I would agree. I I I I'm lucky enough to uh, I found my passion. What makes me happy? To be creative in the way I am. And, uh-huh. and uh, I'm lucky that I can make a living doing it, and uh, I'm happy that my career choice, which is editing, is what I do professionally, gives me the opportunity to spend as much time with my daughter and enjoy life as possible.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. I, I think Tommy Thompson is one of your Facebook friends too, right? Oh, yeah.
0: I love that guy. He has been there for me, and uh, he's just a great guy In every in every – Way possible, and
1: and that's the same Tommy Thompson who was a writer on Quantum Leap, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I love his writing; it's really good.
1: Yeah, you know, anybody who wrote for that show, everybody I interacted with, just really, really cool people, and one of the best script writers I've ever read in my life. And I've read a lot to kind of learn the technique of how to write a script. Absolutely. Donald Belisario, phenomenal mm. writer. If anybody wants to learn what a good script is, read a Donald Belisario script.
0: Uh, the Leap Home, MIA, those are some great shows.
1: Yeah, beautiful dialogue, beautiful descriptive stuff. Uh, and he's very, very successful. He's, I think, does he still have a series on?
0: Uh, the NCIS New Orleans. I wow. think is what he's working on now. I don't and, know how involved he is in day to day operation, but
1: yeah, I, did he start? Did he start with the original Magnum?
0: Like uh, Tequila and Bonetti, there was um, uh, Tales of the Golden Monkey. There was yeah. all kinds of good shows that still hold up today. Uh, it's the writing. I'm I'm more a fan of the writing. Of course, the acting on Quantum Leap is great. The I, they, the casting was perfect. Everything's perfect on Quantum Leap, but the writing is what is the heart of the show, I think. And like you were describing earlier uh, with that pitch meeting, how they had so many writers, producers there, those were the core team of Quantum Leap. And you were like you were passing a litmus test almost if if you were good enough to be part of that voice that they were trying to tell in the story. And I'm glad you uh, passed.
1: Yeah, yeah. And let me tell you about a couple of my failures, too. Uh, I pitched to the animated version of Hello Kitty, Hmm. and all of my ideas were turned down by Hello Kitty. (laughs) So I've had plenty of failures. I pitched to the original Magnum, came close to getting an idea approved, but ultimately my ideas were rejected. Uh, I pitched to an ABC show, animated show called The Little Clowns of Happy Town. I was turned down for all my ideas. So, you know, by no means have I been successful all the time. And I remember thinking, with Little Clowns of Happy Town animated, what a stupid show I'm pitching to. (laughs)
0: The,
1: The guy I, and I was turned down, the guy I pitched to, the guy who was the story editor of the show, working on this stupid Little Clowns of Happy Town show that I was, it was about a bunch of clowns that were animated that lived in a stupid place. Uh, But they were happy. But anyway, the guy, I I even felt bad for the guy I was pitching to. You know, what the hell was he (laughs) working on such a show for? The guy I pitched to was Chuck Lorre. Oh, wow. And if anybody doesn't know who Chuck Lorre is, he's probably now the most successful... Showrunner, executive producer of sitcoms on you now. He, he produced, he executive produced and co-created, I believe, Two and a Half Men, uh, Big Bang Theory, uh, Young Sheldon. Young Sheldon, phenomenally, beautifully written show. I love that show, especially the pilot. So the guy, here's the life lesson. You could be working on something as stupid and embarrassing as The Little Clowns of Happy Town and still end up being Chuck Laurie.
0: Do you have uh, ideas? Like, do you walk around, like, your house and come up with a great idea and say, I have to write that down and use that someday somewhere? Do you still get that as a being a writer for so long? Things I get, I'll be talking to somebody
1: about, I'll say to myself, oh, man, that would be a great piece of dialogue. Uh, or I do have ideas for a movie or something like that, and I write them down, in a notebook. Uh, However, I don't have any great need or compulsion to actually write them. (laughs) (laughs) And right now, for the most part, thank God, knock on wood, I'm incredibly happy. You know, I've had bad things happen. I got divorced a few months ago. You know, I I only have my dog four days a week instead of the whole week, so that, that sucks. So yeah, I've had bad stuff happen, but for the most part, I'm very, very happy. And I know if I turned one of my ideas into a movie, it would be three months or maybe four months of writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting and being Mr. Perfectionist. I've done it. I don't need it. And there are probably people out there who want to be writers saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Why doesn't he write more? You know, maybe there, there are writers like Donald Belisario who keep doing it. That's not a big uh, driving force for me. But I do, like, anytime I hear a cool piece of dialogue in conversation, I go, wow, that's a cool piece of dialogue. Or, oh, gosh, I said something that would be great in, in a script. But I don't have the desire to do the whole script. And I have a couple of ideas that are very cool for movies, but there are a few paragraphs and I have no desire to mesh them into or, or mold them into a whole script. You know, doing a script for a TV show, for a movie, that consumes you. That really consumes you. And, you know, when I was doing animated writing for Spider-Man, I had pictures of Spider-Man all over the place, and I... You know, in my mind, I tried to pretend I was Spider-Man. It was fun. It was cool. Uh, and I'm happy with the script. But but my, you know, I'm just not I'm just not driven to that anymore. I, you know, again, the only thing I would be driven to do is a script for Family Guy. And I know agents, and I could give an agent to call and say, Hey, could you see if you could get me an assignment or a pitch meeting on Family Guy? However, I have not done that.
0: Well, with uh, Seth's love of uh, The Next Generation, I think you would definitely get a meeting.
1: <laughs> you want to know something? I thought, this guy is obviously a big fan of Next Generation. I could probably pitch to that show. And then my next thought was, nah, I don't think If anybody out there thinks I'm nuts, you might be right but that was my thought process. Well, yeah, I could I could probably get a pitch meeting or do a script. He, he loves next generation. Nah, I don't want to do it. I would rather see a good movie or watch TV or eat too much food.
0: Personally, I'd like to see you uh do one more maybe for another Seth MacFarlane uh series that has managed to recapture the feeling and magic of, of The Next Generation that he's doing called The Orville.
1: I've seen I've seen I apologize to fans of The Orbital. I've seen only one episode, mm. and I liked it a lot. I thought it was phenomenal. The twist ending was something to the effect of him and his ex-wife were trapped.
0: Oh, that was and a good the, one, yeah.
1: Yeah, the twist ending. I won't tell the twist ending, but it's a very clever, cool twist ending. And I liked the show a lot, but it's like asking... I love writing. I loved writing my book. I loved writing most of the stuff I wrote. Some of it was a, was a nuisance. Uh, but in a way, it's sort of like asking a foot doctor who's not into being a foot doctor <laughs> to do surgery on three of my toes.
0: <laughs> when you put it like that, it's very understandable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, I, I I remember being at a party once, and some guy... Literally came over to me. This is like a Hollywood party. Be people are writers or producers or actors. So it's that kind of party. Some guy comes over to me and says, yes, Andy, I heard you're a writer. Say something funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I hear you're an accountant. Do my taxes. You know, like, yeah. however, I maintained my politeness and somehow... Mm-hmm. Got out of saying something funny. It, it would be like going up to an accountant and saying, uh, you, or Let me think of a better example. Going up to a brain surgeon and saying, You know, I hear you're a brain surgeon. I might be a little dizzy. Could you do a couple of CAT scans on me? And not, if I need surgery, what do you suggest? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not equating myself with a brain surgeon, but I'm funny when i need to be funny or when it just happens uh i'm making a point on an issue where i forget what the issue is
0: (laughs) that that's the uh that's the indication of a good conversation
1: yeah i think it's what i want to write for the orville yes i thought about it but i dismissed the idea very quickly
0: it's worth a watch anyway i would binge it if i were you Okay,
1: the the episode I saw I thought was terrific and clever, and I could see little touches of Family Guy, Family Guy humor in it. Like the twist ending was sort of a, it wasn't as broad as Family Guy humor, but it was from that same mind. And I got to tell you something else. That Seth MacFarlane is an amazing guy. That guy does animated voices. He writes. He acts. He's written some phenomenal movies. He's good looking. He's about 28 times better looking than me. <laughs> he he he's, hes seems like a very nice guy. Mm. He sings
0: beautifully. Yes. What the hell is going on with that guy? He got all the talent when he was in line for everything. So, uh, yeah.
1: And, yeah. And, and he seems like a nice person, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I really admire him as a writer, as voice actor. He, he did a good job on the Orville that I watched, uh, but what, what are one or two of your favorite shows other than The Orville?
0: Right now, a uh, sitcom, The Goldbergs. I find that interesting because I, uh, it, the, the guy who made up the show... Um, Comes
1: it, from Family Guy.
0: And he was born uh, six months difference from me. So his take on the 80s and pop culture and everything that happened to him uh, kind of happened to me. So it's almost like a show about me. And I think that's how a lot of the people in my age range feel. Uh uh-huh. Because I remember being a kid remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark with a VHS uh, camcorder, you know, that kind of
1: thing. And, and he did kind of similar stuff on the Goldbergs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice show. I like that show. It's comedy, but it's a, a bit different. It's not as broad as family guy comedy. There's mm-hmm. another show that I actually like a lot called Life in Pieces, which I think might have a couple of family guy writers on it. Mm-hmm. And very, very good show.
0: Yeah, that's a good show. There's uh, something on um, Hulu I'm watching right now called uh, No Action. Or, it's a police drama where nothing ever happens.
1: That's pretty funny.
0: Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's good. It's like the day-to-day stuff without the exciting something of the week happening. And
1: well, let me ask you the question. What is it about Quantum Leap that propels you and makes you as much of a fan of it?
0: I've always been... Uh, fascinated with time travel. I think that comes from being a, a younger kid and you know having the insecurity and feeling like I'm constantly messing up with girls or situations or things and wishing I could travel back in time and fix my mistakes. I think that's that's a normal thing. Um, yeah.
1: That, by the way, you and about eighty percent of humanity <laughs> has a hard time with dating or relationships or marriage. You know, like I'm allegedly a very smart guy. Uh, however, I've been married and did not do it twice, did not do a good job twice.
0: Uh, is it worth doing again? I don't know. I'm going through a divorce situation custody thing myself.
1: Well, divorce is very difficult. Uh, there are five pages in my divorce agreement that dealt with the details of the custody of our fluffy little Bashan, uh, but I do not think I'm going to get married again. It's It's... 50% of marriages end in divorce, number one. I think, that, did Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt get divorced?
0: Yes, they did uh, quite a while ago.
1: Okay, now if Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt, who are two geniuses,
0: mm-hmm.
1: cannot make the marriage work, what hope do I have?
0: My feeling exactly.
1: And I'm going to give you another example. This is a quote from Albert Einstein. Possibly the brightest most amazing person in the history of humanity. Here's the quote, might be a little of a paraphrase. I have tried romantic relationships two times. I have failed both times. Close quote. <laughs> now, if Donald Belisario and Deborah Pratt cannot figure it out, if Albert Einstein cannot figure it out, I feel a little less bad mm-hmm. that I have not figured it out. And And, so should you.
0: <laughs> well, like Doc Brown says, the other mystery of uh, life is women's, right?
1: And to women, probably the mystery of life is men. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. It works beautifully in Disney movies, mm. but that's the only place it works easily. I'm guessing after the 50% that end in divorce, there's another 10% that should end but do not because of inertia
0: or- <laughs> or dumbness, or I don't want to give up the poodle, or I like the house, or whatever. I don't want to see my daughter less. That was a big thing why I held on for the last couple of years.
1: Well, one of the reasons it makes you feel better, one of the reasons my wife and I both held on was not out of anything other than we didn't want to see the dog less.
0: I'm right there with you. I totally understand.
1: We, we loved that dog. You're my Facebook friend now.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I'd say about 40% of the pictures on my Facebook page are the dog.
0: Super cute, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you. He's really smart. Beautiful dog. I love that dog. I love lots of things, but I love that dog. He's a beautiful dog. Uh, So, you know, don't feel bad about the divorce. Time will heal most wounds. Am I ever going to get married again? I think the odds are very close to zero. You know, most people, another theory of mine, this is going to sound a little cynical or a lot cynical, you know, you have person A and person B, husband and the wife. Usually person A is working hard to get their life going in a great way. And they have their obstacles and their problems and their difficulties and their successes. And then you have person B trying to get their lives going in a good way. You know, get over this career thing, do that. Oh, do I look good? Oh, is my hair turning white? I got to wonder about this. So you got both people working on a great big puzzle. Then, and it's a difficult puzzle of life, you know, then you join them together and say, okay, well, you haven't worked out your own thing. But now get together and work out things together while you still haven't perfected yourself or evolved yourself. Look the bottom line, Albert Einstein, I tried relationships two times, romantic relationships two times. I failed both times that's I can't beat Albert Einstein.
0: <laughs> That says a lot. I think it has a lot to do with expectation versus reality. And we all have that Disney fairy tale ending. Uh, they all lived happily ever after. And that's just something somebody wrote because they were done writing the script. Well,
1: exactly. And I got to tell you, to a certain degree, I'm responsible for some, a, a little bit of that. If anything, I've wrote in a romantic sense. I've I've done some romantic, dramatic stories. Everybody's happy at the end, and they all work out their problems beautifully. And they do it either in a half hour or an hour. (laughs) And I absolutely believe that subconsciously and or consciously, we think that is how it's supposed to go. You know, I see, I love Disneyland, Disney World, I go there a lot. I see little girls dressing up as princesses. They got to have in their head, I will grow up and be a princess. You know, it, it, that's Disney. And one of the big things that's a big problem about mass communication, it sets up completely unrealistic goals for human beings. And I felt a little bit guilty about doing that stuff. You know, even on Star Trek The Next Generation, everybody on the show is great looking. Everybody on the show is noble. Everybody on the show is wonderful. And at the end, the good guys always win. And somewhere, consciously and or subconsciously, people think that's how it should go. Uh, I I remember being at a party once with a lot of actors. And there was like a TV crew that was coming around, interviewing people and interviewing the actors. And the TV crew came up to me. It's like a showbiz kind of party and they said oh do you, are you having fun at the party do you like it and my answer was no everybody's much better looking than me
0: <laughs> i think we all and think that though maybe mm. you know
1: like i saw all these great looking actors around i it bothered me mm. So, but you know actors look a certain way and they act a certain way. We don't see the 28 takes where they mess up. Right. We see where they do it perfect. We also don't see on just about every show and I I remember this on Star Trek Next Generation when you cut the director says cut what happens almost immediately when the director says cut when a scene is done Hairdressers come in to straighten every hair on the actor's head. Wardrobe people immediately rush into the set to make sure the costumes, you know, with the, the, the stuff that has to look right is not tilted the wrong way. Makeup people rush onto the set to make sure there's no shine on the face. You know, you have people rushing in immediately to get the hair perfect, to get the costume perfect, to get the face perfect. And then when they do another take, everybody disappears. People don't realize what happens when the director calls cut. You know, on most shows, that creation of a perfect false life is what happens.
0: I, I say I say it often that if I had hair, makeup, lighting, and writers, I would be perfect.
1: <laughs> well, I don't need any writers, but I could definitely use hair and makeup and wardrobe people, <laughs> especially wardrobe people. My former wife used to constantly give me grief over my alleged wardrobe. <laughs> so I, I don't need a writer, but I hair guy, yes. There you go. And a wardrobe guy, yes. But, you know, it's, it, while these things are known, at the same time, they're not known. We really expect to be like the TV and the movie guys. I once rented a brand new car, and it was a cool car, and I felt like a better human being. Now, that's because when you have this car, you're allegedly cooler and you're allegedly better. And I bought into that. And that's all a function of mass communication. Uh, However, the great majority of mass communication is very cool. And I love it.
0: One of the things I like about going to fan conventions is I got to hang out one time with Marina Sirtis and Michael Dorn. Uh And just seeing who they really are, at least, you know, to a degree. They were just talking about taxes with each other. And Marina was looking for a cigarette, like the whole time. And it was just interesting to see them as themselves. And it made me feel like I knew them better. Yeah. It's
1: comforting to know that they're really human beings. I remember Michael Dorn on the set once talking to somebody and he was saying something to the effect of, you know, I, I just can't eat pizza. It just lies on my stomach. I can't eat pizza. It's a human being. Hmm. And I'm thinking, Hey, I could eat pizza.
0: Yeah. You love <laughs> you pizza. Eat, I well, had pizza last night, right?
1: I love pizza. Yeah, you have a great photo of a slice of pizza <laughs> in your Facebook page. People should become Facebook friends with you just for your pizza photos. Oh yeah. But, but Michael Dorn, I can't eat pizza. Hmm. They're real human beings, you know, and, and you see that when you see what happens when the director calls cut. You know, they're real human beings, but people just don't realize that stuff.
0: What was Scott Bakula like? Did you get a chance to work with him, meet him while you were writing for the episode?
1: You know, I wrote for the show, but I never met Scott Bakula, and I wish I did, because my guess is he's a very genuinely nice person, and I was thinking about it today, there's something about Scott Bakula's face. I was thinking about it because I knew I was going to do this interview with you. There's something about Scott Bakula's face that's, it's, it's not like a James Bond kind of face. It's not like a Sean Connery when he was James Bond kind of face. There's, in Scott Bakula's face, there's some humanity. There's some lack of perfection. You know, he's a very good-looking guy, but he's not a Sean Connery good-looking guy. Uh, And I think the fact that he has some vulnerability in his face, at least to me, makes him such a terrific actor. Uh, you know, James Bond is cool, but you can't really relate to him on an emotional level. So I'm, I, I think part of his success, he's a great actor, but he's got a face that's just not perfect. Uh, and I've never met him, but I'm guessing he's a, he's a very nice guy.
0: I had the opportunity to talk to him once, and he was very kind, very giving, and just uh, everything you've heard about him is true.
1: That's good. That's good. And, you know, the whole group uh, on Quantum Leap is great. Uh, One of the, I loved, I really, really loved, just shows you the different types of writing I've been lucky enough to do. Absolutely loved Joe Barbera, the Mm. founder of Hanna-Barbera. He was a phenomenal guy, brilliant guy. We would have story meetings or pitch meetings and like, half the meetings would be me laughing and literally, literally hear me outside in the halls out of his office laughing. You know, like, he was so funny and such a brilliant guy. You know, you could talk to him about something you read in the New York Times, and he would read the New York Times usually front to cover. And just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He was a great guy. I, You know, I, I loved him.
0: They say never meet your heroes, but it's 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 awesome when you do and they do live up to your expectations.
1: Well, I I met Stan Lee, phenomenal guy. Met Jo uh Joe Barbera, phenomenal guy. Uh Gene Roddenberry, I didn't get real close to. I had plenty of meetings with him. You know, he, you know, took me on his golf cart that he drove around the Paramount studios with. And he would aim for people jokingly and then veer away the last time. He seemed like a good guy. I didn't spend a a huge amount of time with him. I spent time in story meetings and pitch meetings and that kind of thing. But some of the greatest guys I've met, Joe Barbera, phenomenal guy, Sam Simon, co-creator of Simpsons, phenomenal guy, uh, gosh most most of the people I've worked with or met or had as friends phenomenal people, and I talk about them in the secrets your textbook will not tell you on amazon. oh oh gosh, I just worked that in uh I've met a couple of jerks, but I'm not going to mention their names and uh, the jerks are relatively few. I think if you're really bright, you're not a jerk because. Somebody said to me once, there's only short-term gain in being a jerk. And I think if you're really, really bright, you know it's counterproductive to be a jerk. I had one producer, very big producer, I'm not going to mention the guy's name, very powerful guy. Uh, I went into his office for some story meeting, and out of the blue he brings up a subject. He says, Sandy do you know why I love being a producer? And I say, no, blank. Why do you love being a producer? And he said, I really, really love getting to manipulate people. And I thought he was kidding, but he was not. But uh, anyway, there you go.
0: Is there anything um, else that you might have remembered from your experience with Quantum Leap? Uh, that you could tell, tell us?
1: Uh, the most interesting thing about Quantum Leap was walking into that room for the pitch meeting, and I'd never had that many people at a pitch meeting. Usually at a pitch meeting where you want a pitch story idea, uh, it's one person, maybe two people, but to have seven people facing you in a pitch meeting was fascinating and kind of scary. But as the meeting kept going, it was just an amazing joy, an amazing experience to be interacting with these phenomenal, brilliant brains and and creative people, and it, it was it was joy, and that's my favorite memory of Quantum Leap: the fact that I had the ability, the luck, the great good fortune to interact with those kinds of minds uh it was fun it was an honor and that was my absolute best memory
0: professor freeze which is an awesome comic book villain name by the way thank you thank you the book is secrets your textbook will not tell you i read a lot of books of for people i interview but i don't recommend them all this one i highly recommend uh you can pick it up on amazon the link will be in the show notes in the description Sandy, thank you so much for being on the Quantum Leap Podcast.
1: Well, thank you for doing a really excellent interview. I do a bunch of interviews. You're a top interviewer. You're one of the best. Uh, I love how you get into the nuances of the things you're discussing. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to do the interview with you, and thank you very, very much.